All right. Um, ministering to the marginalized. I hope all of you noticed out in the uh, on either side of the door as you came in, there were some burden buckets. Did you put all your burdens in there when you came through? <laughs> if you didn't, you know, you could give them to the ushers and they'll take your burdens back there. Especially when you're at a conference like this, you know, your head is going so fast, your heart needs to catch up. And I hope during this time, um, it'll be calm enough that it can kind of catch up. So I'd like to start out with worship because... Um, the, the Lord's presence, it almost, it, it talks a lot about his presence being there when we worship. The song is from a Michael W. Smith song, and it was a live recording. I want to just say a couple things. I hope the clapping and all that isn't distractive. Um, we have, we'll have the words up here, but um, let's kind of be, just be real conscious that we're worshiping him and not worrying about people around us. We have a lot of different worship styles. And if you're a musician like me, you have to avoid the temptation of singing, singing the third part and hope that somebody's listening, you know, because this goes so, you know, how that temptation is when you... So just make it you and him and worship. It's, it's words from the Psalms. Um, so maybe, Mark, if you want to just bring it to us. I'm not sure of the volume. Sing along, meditate, or don't sing, or whatever. Um, it's hard to know till after the intro. There's just a little bit of an intro. How many know the song? Good. Won't be a solo. join together.
Lord Jesus, it's so refreshing to think about you and to know that you are the Lamb seated on the throne. So we pray that the Holy Spirit, who you've given to each one of us who belong to you, would guide our thoughts. Lord, it's hard to concentrate sometime right after lunch and also after all the good messages and stuff. So we ask that he would be ever-present in a way that would help us to guide our thoughts. Father, take your truth to our heart. Don't let it just stick in our heads. And I pray, Father, as we um, sort of symbolically mention putting all our burdens outside, that the burdens that are still left within the room, Father, would be put down under the desk and not that they wouldn't be allowed to interrupt the time of refreshing, that they wouldn't be allowed to intrude in our thoughts in a way. I especially, I especially pray against the places of fear in people's lives and ask that your peace would be a one-on-one -on -one exchange for that fear so that it would be a really a place of refreshing in your presence as we hear from you. Um, we thank you that you are here more than just in name or in token or as something religious, but you said when your people get together that you're right there listening and you're right there teaching, you're right there ministering, and we trust you. Without that, it's just a waste, Lord. Um, I guess we thank you ahead of time for the ways that you'll, you'll minister to our soul, our spirit. Uh, we really trust you, Lord. Amen. Well, let's see. Are there any vacant chairs? Raise your hand. There's a couple if people need to find a chair here or there or the other. Isn't it good just to point at him? I mean, it just kind of knocks you out. Okay, back to our topic. Ministering to the marginalized. Can I see the hands of those who know odd people? Don't say your spouse. Don't, don't, don't go there. You've got to drive home with them, probably. Um, we're going to talk about the marginalized, not as odd people, but, you know, there are some situations in, your, in the row of the vineyard that the Lord has asked you to pick in his vineyard. There's just some situations, and you're not really sure how to effectively minister. It just seems as though things are just a little odd. And we'll be giving some specific examples in a minute of what we mean. But our notes are starting on page 82. If you looked up marginalized in the dictionary, I should mention in the notes, having been a teacher, I usually make sure the students are listening by leaving in blanks. So as they nod off, then they miss something, and then usually people go, wait, I have a blank in my life. I can't live with a blank in my life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that's a, he's giving a good example. I don't know if you heard him, but talking about giving truth to someone over and over again, and they just kind of back off. They're not able to absorb it. Hopefully we'll have time at the end for question and answer and comments. Um, so if 
if you have specific situations or ideas of how to be a helpwife, please mention them because we want to be very practical. Yeah, we want to be very practical. We don't want to uh, just spend, you know, like an hour and 25 minutes explaining the problem and five minutes giving some practical ideas. We're going to turn that on its head. That's why we're going to go quite fast through some of the things. But if you looked up the word in the dictionary, marginalized would mean unimportant, insignificant, not worth mentioning, or not worth worrying about. As I started to say, because it was late in the day, uh, originally this was going to be tomorrow morning, actually, and I didn't want people to miss anything. I put all of them in your notes rather than fill in the blanks, so feel free to nod off if you need to, because it's all in there anyway. Okay. There are a group of marginalized people that we're not going to focus on, but I just want to make mention of, and that is um, the mentally challenged, the physically handicapped, ex-prisoners, ones who've been released from the sex trade, and that's becoming more and more of an issue, coming to light, it's always been an issue, or those with dissociative issues. We're not going to really talk specifically about this group, but I'd like to sort of just to get a feel on where we're at in our churches. Can I see your hands if you have mentally challenged folks in your church? Okay, how about um, the physically handicapped? Are there wheelchairs in your aisles? Hey, praise the Lord. Um, Ex-prisoners? All right. Um, Ones released from the sex trade? Um, those with dissociative issues. All right. Um, the dissociative uh, issues have to do, we're not going to speak specifically about that, but all that I'm presenting is dissociative friendly. In other words, we're going to have a demo class here, um, and it, sometimes it gets pretty wild, but the demo class will be here, and um, it's the type of material and the way we teach that is absorbable even by those who have a lot of mind noise and have dissociative issues. Sometimes if we have 30 women in a class, about seven or eight of them come in having been diagnosed with DID. For those of you who don't know, DID is dissociative identity disorder. It used to be called multiple personality disorder. Um, And if you know, if the Lord has placed someone uh, there in your row in the vineyard who has that, um, you can have confidence that though we don't mention DID very much here, all of it can be put in the DID context as well as other areas. Um, sometimes we see people in our churches that have obvious problems. I was uh, hearing about a lady in another big church in Colorado Springs where I come from, and she said she met this woman in the hallway and shook her hand She hadn't seen her before, and the lady said, Hi, I'm Elizabeth. I'm an incest survivor. Well, that was an example of a person. Her inappropriateness about greeting that way was because her past was so much intruding into her present. Um, Probably a less intense, well, maybe another intense example. I went up to say hello to somebody at church, and then I noticed as we began talking that she had... um, cuts from her wrist to her elbow, self-inflicted cuts. Um, Obviously, just uh, the anguish that she was living with, believe it or not, the cutting made her feel better. 
uh, or a less intense example. What about the lady in your Bible study who just always has the answers, but she never seems, there just seems to be an uneasiness, and it's though as though the answers, giving the answers is a protection from having to absorb the truth that you're talking about. Or a, fi- a person who who just takes everything personally, and you just can hardly get along with them because, well, what do you mean by that? You know, they're always questioning you, your motives. Um, those might be less intense examples of marginalized people. Marginalized people will define in just a second, but I want to get through to us that the Lord doesn't have that definition of marginalized that we just looked at. He has a heart for the marginalized. How I'd like to describe it is the marginalized are those whose spiritual and emotional issues from their past are significantly intruding into their present. As a result, they stay on the fringes of the church community. They just don't seem to fit in. I know that there can be difficulties that arise when you have a a normal discipleship track, say Bible studies, couples Bible studies. Lady came to me, she said, we're having real trouble in our couples Bible study because there's a single woman who comes in and she's really obviously got a crush on the Bible study leader and the Bible study leader's wife is sitting right next to him but she's, you know, very obviously trying to get his attention and it's just disrupting the whole class. Um, marginalized people, we'll see in a minute, our attitude toward the marginalized really affects how we respond to them. But I want to start from the beginning not to paint the picture that the marginalized people are oddballs or the marginalized people are those who we should short, sort of avoid because, in a sense, we're already doing that a lot because we feel so awkward. And we're going to look at some of the barriers to ministering to the marginalized in just a minute. I'd like to look at four other types of people and spend just a little bit more time zeroing in on these. By the way, as a mini infomercial, those of you that are working in the DID arena, um, Lydia Discipleship Ministry, our byline is that we equip the church to disciple hurting people. And in that is the understanding that that includes the most shattered. You might be thinking, well, you know, I don't understand DID or anything. don't necessarily need to. You just need to know that the level of abuse that a person has suffered, especially when they were very small. For example, in my case, my abuse began when I was three. And so by the time I was about, oh, I don't know, seven or eight, my emotions were so shattered, not my mind, but... I just had compartmentalized the, the horrific things that had happened to me so that I didn't have to think about them all the time. So that's an example of a person whose abuse has been so severe that it's almost like our brain goes on overload. And in order to keep the wires from burning out, the Lord has allowed dissociation so that we can sort of temporarily put it over here until the right time when the Lord brings it forward and we can find healing from that emotional problem. But look at these four people, the people like the emotionally wounded person with unresolved sexual abuse issues, or like the person whose obvious bitterness toward God and distrust of people has alienated them and isolated them, making it so that they don't fit into the church community, or the person who has been paralyzed by the shame of their hidden past. For them, their own sense of worthlessness is so big that it saturates their whole life and their church experience as well. 
or like the man who was demoralized by his failure to get free from his secret addiction to pornography and spends most of his energy hiding his addiction from the others in the church. You probably don't have to look far to find someone who might you might be able to categorize as kind of on the margins of your church. Um, there's mainstream discipleship that goes on in the church, and that's great. I often tell people like that the, the sanctification people has the two parts, as I mentioned before. It has the deeply wounded, and then it has the rest of us who are the walking wounded. Because our issues from our past, the Lord is still dealing with as he conforms us to the image of Christ, but those issues don't intrude into our life in such a significant way that we can't clean up pretty good and come to church. And I mean clean up emotionally and, and mentally so that when we come, we fit in to the Bible studies, the discipleship classes. Some people don't have that luxury because during their childhood, when they were supposed to be learning social skills, how to get along, how to greet people, how to come in and out of the church building, they were busy trying to stay alive. And so that normal sense of social development has been missing. And as a result, they might seem a little bit odd. They don't know how to interact perhaps as effectively as most of us do. I'd like to have us on the next slide read these verses, but I'd like to to have us read it as though we've never read it before. If you're like me and you've seen verses, I'd say, okay, da, 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 you know, kind of mindless thing, especially after that good lunch. But um, this talks about the word being the dunamach, you know, the dynamite that blows up stuff in our life. So let's read this aloud together, just as though we'd never heard it before in our life. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. And he opened the book and found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, he sent me to claim liberty captives and recovery of sight to the blind and to set free those who are oppressed to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. I think before we read this other verse, these two verses together give us an idea of the heart of the Lord toward the marginalized. If I could just ask someone in the back to bring me a glass of water or something, my throat is a little bit dry here. Um, I think that in order to, remember this is a time when he, thank you. This is a time when, the last verse we read, when he came into the temple and being a rabbi, I guess, I don't know. I don't know what his age was then, but he stood up and read that and then sat down. And he said, well, it's been fulfilled right here in me. Um, and it's so clear a picture of what he thinks about the oppressed and those who are poor that would, I'm sure, fit into our category of what we're calling marginalized. Let's also read this verse. It goes on to two slides, but especially notice the verbs as we read it out loud. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I myself will search for my sheep and seek them out, 
as a shepherd cares for his herd in the day when he is among his scattered sheep, so I will care for my sheep and will deliver them from all the places to which they were scattered on a cloudy and gloomy day. I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and bring them to their own land, and I will feed them on the mountains of Israel, by the streams, and in all the inhabited places of the land. And I will feed them in a good pasture, and their grazing ground will be on the mountain heights of Israel. There they will lie down on good ground, and feed in rich pastures on the mountains of Israel. I will feed my flock, and I will lead them to rest, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost, bring back the scattered, bind up the broken, and strengthen the sick. If that doesn't give you a, a sort of a template of the Lord's heart for people, um, the Lord loves needy people. I was just thinking when someone said to me, children have... that." Children display unabashed neediness. And I find as a believer, you figure, well, I'm growing and I'm getting past that needy stage, and so here I go, you know, until the training wheels fall off or you're running to the, to the corner of the coffee table with your head, you know, as you're learning to walk. Um, the neediness that wounded people express almost becomes a model for us, not the inappropriateness that comes out of that, but a model for us in terms of transparency and also being willing to tell the Lord, you know, I'm really needy. I'm just really a mess, actually. <laughs> you know, And moving forward from there instead of trying so hard to have it together. Um, I think I'm trying to see what would be the best way to go. If I were to ask you, okay, think of a person in your church that you would, by our definition, consider marginalized. Okay, you've got that person, you know their name. What are some of the obstacles to ministering to that person? Can you give me some ideas of what you think? Why is it a little bit more difficult to minister in that arena than it would be in sort of the normal flow of the church um, discipleship programs? Hopelessness, uh, their hopelessness you're speaking of, or those that help? <laughs> those that help. You just feel hopeless. Like, what am I going to, where do I start? What else? Mm-hmm. They're comparing themselves to what they consider to be the mature Christians, and so, you know, you've got that comparison thing going on. Mm-hmm. There's a fear on their part, right? Uh-huh. It feels hard to connect. That's an excellent point. It does. Because, you know, if you've got two kids between the ages of five and seven and your neighbor has two kids between the ages of five and seven, your husbands are all, all both involved in his church and even where the, have the same kind of SUV, um, you know, you can connect a little more easily with that like-mindedness even in backgrounds. Back here? Ah, that's a good point. We just need to leave them to the professionals. I'm not a counselor, so I can't be doing this kind of stuff. You know, um, I think, well, we'll talk about that in a little minute. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
Someone has such a pile of issues. It's like an old pile. Every time the paper comes in, you throw it on a pile. Next day, Tuesday, Wednesday, there's this huge pile of stuff. And if you want to get a, a page out of that, you don't know where to start. Mm-hmm. Okay. Fear of being sucked dry. That's a realistic fear. Because if one person is trying to minister to a deeply wounded person, depending on, on what that, how that person presents themselves, how they interact, what level of maturity they're at, um, it can be very, very time-consuming. I have a wonderful four-letter word that's okay to say in church, and it relates to that, and it's the word T-E-A-M, team. I don't think you can minister to the marginalized without a team. So some of us go, well, gee, I'm the only one that seems to have a heart for them in the church. What am I supposed to do? Where do I start? Stay tuned. Don't fall asleep. Or we'll wake you up when we get to that part. Some other ideas. I'm sorry, I didn't hear the first. They might have blocks from unconfessed sin, okay, so that they themselves are sort of blocked off from any kind of a relationship. Mm-hmm. They want to consume all your time. They finally found someone who cares. I mean, they never had that before. And and it's like it's just like a miracle to them. And they see such they see you as a lifesaver. So it's very logical in their mind that I mean, if you had twenty four seven to give to them, they would really want that because they see that you care. Uh-huh. They feel second class, somewhat so much less than everybody else. We have a class that we teach. Uh, it's a Bible study. It's uh, we have our Katie Secret class, recovery from sexual abuse. Then after people go through that, we have another class called Toads and Swans, and it's, it's sort of rich. I'm sorry, but it's sort of our identity in Christ in a new way. You know, Toads and Swans is the idea that. You know, especially ladies who've been sexually abused, you go to church and you see all these swans swimming by. I mean, their hair is all fixed up, and they're like, wow, you know. And they just seem to go and have it together, and I'm this toad, you know. I mean, something got wrecked in me because of my abuse that can never be repaired, and so I'm here, and they're there, and I've lost my application for swanhood. I don't know where I put it. You know, so there's kind of no hope is what you're talking about. Somebody else? Distrust, can't really receive your love, like um, John was talking about. Being willing to be loved is almost um, harder to do than to love. Mm -hmm. Right. That's that's very good. The, the, The fear that their woundedness, and often if there's spiritual implication, if there's anything demonic going on, fearing that that will have a negative impact on the church, especially, well, what about the kids? You know, um, so that there's there's the wisdom that's needed to have appropriate discipleship going on in the church. Well, let's look at a couple of what, what you've said. Let's sort of summarize in um, a couple of ways here. The main obstacle I see, and I'm talking from the helper's part, is fear. I won't know what to do. I mean, worst case scenario, what if there's like a demonic eruption or something? Uh, I, I'll just be like just a nerve ball in that situation. 
Um, or what if, what if they start telling me about some stuff and it's like, oh my goodness, I didn't even realize that was going on. And so you go home with PTSD, post-secondary post-traumatic stress syndrome, because you've heard this now, it's stuck in your head. There are ways to deal with both of those, by the way. I might feel awkward. There's a lot of silence often around deeply wounded people because they don't know how to interact. And if you're uncomfortable with silence, it's like very awkward. Or if they tell you something, issues, whether they're having to do with sexual abuse or whatever, and you just sort of feel TMI, you know, too much information. I really wish that I didn't know that, the awkwardness. I might damage them. Someone brought that out. I don't want to do anything inadvertently to harm them. I mean, I don't have any training in this. Well, except for that deeper walk lady. But anyway. Um, and I had to include the last one because I think it's a subtle fear sometimes. They might hurt me, especially if there's demonic stuff. Um, you know... The reality of our authority in Christ really comes into play here. Um, where I've been in situations where there's been a demonic eruption in a person. And sort of my modus operandi of helping a person is not standing on my authority in Christ, but teaching them how to stand on their authority because they have to leave in about an hour. And so if I ask her, well, do you want that? spirit being there and she said no amidst all the other stuff that was going on and um, I said well why didn't you tell her to leave well she suddenly went mute and she couldn't talk so I said well say it inside as loudly as you can and I'll say it outside and I'm agreeing with your authority here we command this spirit to leave in the name of Jesus Christ and that was the end of it um but all of us who have been in the trenches know that where the hair stands up on the back of your neck when there's a sudden eruption, you know? And I find if I let fear in just a tiny bit, it wants to take over. So I just have to shut it down right at the beginning. But also, this issue, like in dissociation, there's a lot of self-abuse, a lot of cutting often, um, in the anguish. I really don't know, I probably could count on half of a hand to, Cases where I know where someone who was helping was injured in any way, usually that violence is turned inward toward them. So that I, I think this last one, though, it's a concern. I've not seen it as a reality. So um, Ways to overcome fear. Um, gaining understanding is the place to start. I want to give a couple examples here because if I can... If I can um, use a story from Jim Wilder. I think it's a really powerful one, so I hope I get all the facts straight. If I don't, don't tell him. Because, uh, But he said that he was at a church picnic out in California where he goes to church, and there was kind of an odd lady there. She, um, well, they were in line to get the buffet, and she she just went right up ahead and just very rudely intruded and put herself in the front of the line. And not only that, but her plate, she just absolutely piled it, like high, more than you would even could even eat at a church picnic. And her disheveled appearance and her odor, her body odor, let people know that probably hygiene wasn't high on her list of priorities. 
Well, can you imagine if, let's think for a minute, if that happened, and we won't say out loud, but just think, what would be my reaction? I'd probably react react to the cutting in line, you know, but um, just, you know, you'd think, well, gee, you know, what's this about? Well, later in the same time, time frame there, Jim said he was talking with a man who identified himself as this woman's husband. And this this man said, and as they got to talking, told Jim that his wife had survived the Holocaust. She'd been in a concentration camp. So she had this terrible fear she wouldn't have enough food, and she was afraid to take a shower because of the gas chamber situations. Now that understanding of the situation totally changes our heart, doesn't it, toward that woman? And that's a big point. Understanding guides our emotional response. That's why gaining understanding can be helpful. Because if there's um, if there's an accurate understanding of the situation and of the person, then our emotions will be in the right place where we can have a, a good foundation from which to minister to that person. Another example comes from Ravi Zacharias. He said he was in in India and he was in in a car. They were going somewhere, and the past the local pastor was his guide, and and he uh, was in the car with him. And of course, the beggars were crushing in on the car. They had to go really slowly, and and there was a woman at the window that had this really emaciated baby in her arms, and she was crying. And, and she was begging for money, and it just really struck Ravi. And he went to get out his wallet, and and the the pastor said, "No, no, don't do that." He said, "Many people here intentionally starve their young children to play on the sympathies of foreigners, and this isn't a good situation." And immediately, Ravi says he changed from his heart of compassion toward just being incensed that this woman would dare to do this to her little one-year-old. Um, and so his emotions took a complete different flip based on his understanding, his accurate understanding of the situation. Also, gaining understanding that there is emotional and spiritual baggage in the lives of hurting people, and this causes unique challenges. Let me get your ideas again. What might be some of the unique challenges that ministering to the marginalized might bring because of their baggage. Someone mentioned it earlier, the lack of trust, so there would be a barrier to trusting. What might be some of the other unique issues? Right. He was saying that he in his he tends to be a bit pushy with the truth, and so when people come up against that, there's a resistance to that. Right, and you can have the counter effect because mm-hmm. you know what you're trying to get across. And it's not working. Right. Yeah. So what do you do? Yeah. yeah. Stay tuned. All right. Yeah. Um, can you give me some other unique examples? Uh, baggage, I'm sorry, of unique issues? Difficulty in knowing if they're lying to you or not, okay? In here? A lot of the folks I've worked with have read every book they can 
he says some folks read, uh, have read every book on every topic uh, trying to get help, and some of it's good and some of it's bad, and they bring that with them. Let me give an example of inadvertent spiritual abuse, because that's, in a way, what that speaks to bad theology is what you're talking about. But a lady came to me, and she said, I don't know what to do. She said, I don't know what the Lord's trying to tell me. This is a deeply wounded woman. I said, well, what do you mean? She said, well, we had a prophet at church today, and he stood up and he said, around, 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 life is a merry-go-round, and he sat down. So I'm trying to figure out, what was God trying to tell me? And I said, he's trying to tell you to find another church. (laughs) I did Now, this same lady came later to me, and I'm not sure if she took my advice or not, but she said, she said, well, the pastor told me that in order to be free of the demonic that, that he knows and I know is my life, is in my life, I need, whatever I, whenever I think of it, I need to say, Jesus, 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 three times. And I, I need to kneel down when I do this. And she said, I almost got hit by a car because I was across in the street and so I said, Jesus, Jesus, and I almost got hit there. But she said, so I went back to him. I said, well, it's been a whole week, and I'm still not free. And what she was supposed to do was kneel down and lift up her hands. And he told her, I don't think you lifted your hands up high enough. You know. So that is a very real issue that he's reminding us of, the, the spiritual confusion. that Because people are desperate. They'll try anything. You know, if you say, jump on a polo stick for 12 hours and you'll be free of demons, I mean, people would line up borrowing polo sticks because they know the anguish of staying where they're at. When, uh, a few years ago, well, let me get to this slide first. Ways to overcome fear. Process the fear with the Lord. Well, what in the world does that look like? Have you ever been to church and sometimes they say, well, they give you kind of vague abstracts, and I'm not too good with that. Like they'd say, well, um, uh, make the Lord the center of your life. Okay? Could you just describe what that would be? Or, or um, let's see, I've got a couple here that I wrote down. Um, oh, it might just be, well, you, you just need to trust the Lord. Well, can you help me with that? What does that, are there ways to learn to trust Him? And that's what our class will be demoing. Learning how to trust God. There is a way to learn how to trust God, to encourage people to trust God. Rather than being vague, processing with the Lord by processing, I define that as dealing with truth on a spiritual and emotional level. We run into trouble when we just deal with truth on a spiritual level and we equate our emotions with the flesh and so we're supposed to die to the flesh so we pretend we don't feel that way. You know, they can see in the brain, like, anger coming. So if you say, okay, I'm not going to be angry, I'm not going to be angry. Well, it's like, I'm not going to breathe, I'm not going to breathe. I mean, that's there. That's why God says, be angry. That's obvious you're human, but don't sin. So how would this be? How would this work? Well, identifying the specific fear. Lord, I'm afraid to minister to marginalized people because I just, whatever, and you fill in the blank. Tell the Lord about it. Ask him to help us fight that particular fear. He's really good at telling us why are we susceptible to that fear. And a lot of times it has to do with some baggage in our past. About eight years, nine years ago, the Lord let 
Lady of Discipleship Ministries um, send some staff people over to Romania to work in some of the churches to train them how to work with the Romas or the Gypsies. You talk about marginalized people in Europe and especially the Eastern Bloc countries, the Romas are the despised ones. They're the thief, they're the liars, they're the whatever. And uh, the discrimination and just, just the horribleness uh, that they experience. Well, Dana was the lady who went over to Romania and um, we were thinking, okay, she was teaching the Barnabas course. We have this core uh, training for leaders called How to Be a Barnabas, encouraging people in their spiritual lives. And she was going to take that over there and teach it in the seminary. There was, it was there as well as in these six churches. And so part of that is we have a baggage chart. And the top of the chart identifies about 10 common areas of baggage of really deeply wounded people. Then the bottom of the chart says, okay, since this is a baggage, you, if you're discipling them, this is what you need to attend to, or this might be an idea of how to, how to get past that baggage. Well, so we're sitting thinking, what are the baggage of the Romans? I mean, we don't know. Is it like American baggage, you know, or what? So it, but in prayer, as we prayed, the Lord, we filled out these 10 little things of what baggage they would have. And Dana said, when she got there, it was exactly what they were experiencing. And she said the first night at the seminary, she taught, and, and the next morning, one of the men came. He was a local pastor of, of a gypsy church. He was a gypsy himself, and he came, and he started crying, and he said, I did something last night that I've never done in my entire life. I thank God that he made me a gypsy. You know, and the shame of that, that he had carried all this life, that was part of the baggage that was there. The reason I mentioned them is that the specific people the Lord's brought to your church already, the marginalized people, it might be helpful to pray and say, Lord, what is the unique baggage of these people? Sort of like New Tribe's mission, wherever you go, you know, get to understand the culture, get to understand the people and their baggage. And then, okay, Lord, if that's true, how do you want us to work with that? How can we work so that that baggage, that little... You know, whether it's a knapsack or a U-Haul trailer that they're dragging along, whatever the size of it is, how do you want us to deal with that? So. A third way to overcome fear is to get specific training. And the first part, I'm going to mention two types of training. One is in creating appropriate discipleship. Appropriate discipleship meets the need of the people you're discipling. It, it, it may take a little different track than the normal, you know, Beth Moore series are great, I love them, or Kay Arthur, or whoever else, or uh, what's the <coughs> precepts lady? Kay yeah, Kay Arthur, that's who I meant. Um, and, you know, that's great. But if you're sitting in class, you've got lots of mind noise, you've got demonic interference, You've made a suicide attempt during the week. You just got out of the mental hospital. I mean, these kind of things, and you're sitting there. You've got to cut things into bite-sized pieces. Uh, you, to diagram all these sentences and that might not be exactly the most appropriate discipleship. It is in other cases. I'm not denigrating it. It's just in cases where you're working with the marginalized, it's not going to work too well. 
And again, I hate to keep mentioning it, but I think it's in the Barnabas, if not the R&R training. Um, it's uh, one of the one of the worksheets is how to have a blah 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 class, you know. And it's sort of tongue in cheek, in that we're so used to lecturing, like I'm doing now. That's one of the worst ways of communicating, especially when you're discipling hurting people. Um, so there are different things to do rather than get up and spew out truth like even you were saying. And then you meet resistance and you think, well, that's not very effective. There must be a different way. What I'd like to do now is, um, Bob, I'm wondering if we've got about 10 minutes. Can we still switch it to do the class? Or should we move forward and then come back to the class? The class will be about 20 minutes. What would be the best? Hey, I like that. Okay. Why don't we um, why don't we do our class? I've asked several people to come up if they could come up here maybe. And we're going to do a discipleship class that actually comes from the um, R&R program. The R&R is a discipleship class for wounded people um, and there are four or five modules in it, learning how to trust God, clearing the way to God the Father, learning how to control your thoughts. There's a section called More Than Conquerors that deals with training people how to become spiritually aggressive. And so what I've asked people to do is to come and be pesky parkers, as the British say. In other words, to be problematic, to cause me problems, which is always fun, because I never know what they're going to say. And if you'll notice, we have one fellow with us, if you want to just find a chair there. Anyway, you can sit in Bob if you had enough space. Bob's my little wheelchair. Um, and I should mention that typically, when you're working with deeply wounded people, you wouldn't have men and women together. For example, we have our R&R program um, that some of the pastors at our church put took the R&R program put together for men. They removed part of the study on the life of Joseph, how he moved from victim to victory, and they put in a, a, a module on sexual purity. But the issues of getting to know God the Father, learning how to trust God, all these other things are the same. Um, if you look in your book on page uh, 84, this is from a section, a, a study called This Changes Everything, Learning How to Trust God. And if you don't mind, students, I'll stay up here. Um, I was asking the Lord, how can you teach people to trust you? I mean, they don't trust anybody. And it suddenly dawned on me, which is, I think, what he popped into my head, that I really believe people trust God to the measure that they believe he unconditionally loves them. So if they believe that 10%, they trust him 10%. And so this class is designed, this changes everything. It's designed to zero in. It's a study on um, the unconditional love of God. You can see in your notes, which are from the, um, the leader's notes, On page, I've got to be on the same page with you, 84. This acrostic up here, this is kind of the outline of the class. If you, if you look down N-O-T, if you use T and go down, that's trust. That's what we studied in the first week, uh, going across not what trust is not. Often by looking at the opposite, you can get clarity on what something is. 
learn? Is it possible to learn how to trust God? Difficult. Why is it difficult for me to trust God? The caboose is running the train. That has to do with what's the role of feelings related to the truth. And then faith. What is faith? And that's what we're zeroing in on today. Probably to avoid confusion, you see introduction and review. There's a whole lot of dots there. Why don't you cross out the last four sentences because that's on actually the next page. So just so you can follow along and see what we're doing here. I've asked the people, several of whom have ministered in classes to deeply wounded people or one-on-one, I've asked them to imitate some of the stuff that the folks that they know um, would say. And so uh, we'll just assume that you can be as pesky as you want to be. So, And it'll be interesting to see. I'd like to, to get some feedback afterwards. What did you notice about this class? What did you notice about the students, about the teacher? What did you notice about what was taught? All those kind of things. So it's amazing how much nonverbal body language um, is already going on in the class. But um, I'm going to review last week's lesson, and then we'll move on from there. So um, I think I know those. some of you have already mentioned to me that your week has been rather interesting, sort of like this headset. Anyway, um, and we can maybe talk more in our small group. This is an aside. We have an hour-long group large group, and then we break into small groups for an hour. And those small groups are facilitated by different different people. Um, I sort of want to go over what we went over last week, because this whole thing of trust, like we said last week, is so hard to get your brain around, isn't it? And I'm wondering if we can kind of do a review. There's no grading on this, by the way. It's a quiz and no grading. But we, we covered several questions last time. Let's start with the first. What does it mean to trust? Anybody have something they want to input us with here? What does it mean to trust? It's hard for me to trust. It's hard for you to trust, yeah. Well, um, you know, my dad left me when I was little. My husband, my ex-husband always told me that um, I'd never do any... Never do anything without him, yeah. and that I was no one would ever love me again if I left, and yeah. and I don't trust any man. Yeah, you know that is so common. Understanding your background, even the little I know about it, um, I can really see why you're at on that. I mean that that must make it incredibly difficult to trust. Anybody else want to add a, a different facet or definition of trust? Well, you. S- you said about having maybe a distorted view of God, and I think maybe I have that. Mm-hmm. That is so key, like she's saying, a distorted view of God. I mean, I think a lot of people should fire the God that they know in their head and install the real God, because the God that they picture in their head, that is not the God of Scripture. I mean, the characteristics, they just don't line up with Scripture. That's a good point. But I thought I, I read it in Scripture. That's the thing. What did you read? Well, that, you know, he gets very wrathful and mm-hmm. when you do wrong and yeah. punishes. And well, you know, I think as a class goes along, one of the things that we hope will happen is that your understanding of verses like that and how they fit in and how they do 
show us God's character, but it's in a context, a certain context, it will really help us to get rid of some of the distortions. You know, like, if you have a big, have you seen those things if you have trouble seeing? It's like a, it's like a page, but it's a magnifying glass. And if I'm trying to read something here and I put it down really close, it looks, I can see it pretty good. But like if I look at you and put it up, it's like really distorts you because I'm so far away. And I think the same thing happens. As you get closer to God, the distortions get cleared up. And that's why I've been encouraging you, wherever you're starting at, some of you can only like peek at God, you know, sort of behind something safe. That's fine. Just start examining what we're saying about what he's like. And as the class goes on, I bet you'll find that when you read verses like that, instead of scaring you and thinking that God's out to punish you or whatever, I think you'll be able to really put those things in context and see what he's really like. Just as a reminder, too, a couple other things we mentioned is that it's like learning to lean. Trust is like learning to lean. Remember we mentioned that verse that said, in, in, in all your ways to not, my brain is going here, of not to depend on yourself, but to lean on him, to acknowledge him, and he'll make our path straight. It's like learning to trust him more and more so that we can put more of our weight on him. You know, I grew up on a farm, and the horses, when you used to brush them, if you leaned against them, that was the wrong thing to do because they would start leaning on you. And, I mean, you've got this huge horse suddenly leaning on you. That's kind of a picture of what God says, Hey, I don't care how heavy you are. You can lean on me. I can't lean on anyone or anything. You can't. Why, can you give us a little more understanding of why that would be? Well, I couldn't trust my dad. He was always drunk. My goodness. And then he beat up my mom, and my mom would leave yeah. and not come back for days. Wow. And then when I got older, uh, I had relationships, you know, with other women, and yeah. and then I would get mad at them and beat them up, and then they would leave. And uh, over the years, my kids don't want to be around me. And yeah. I can't trust God. And so I just have learned to rely on myself alone. Yeah. And it's gotten me pretty far. Yeah. Well, I know what you said earlier in the class. You know, it sounds like you've been able to accomplish a lot of things. One of the things that concerns me is that when we rely on ourselves, we reach a point where it's just too exhausting. And what I'm hoping happens, you know, the pattern you talked about is terrible. It's like one pattern after the other, all telling life. you. Yeah, your whole life telling you, you can't trust, you can't trust. And later on in this class, we're going to be looking at, okay, this is what God's telling me. And he's asking me, he's inviting me to trust him. Okay, let me look at the facts. Because I think you're a guy that likes to look at the facts. And I think once we begin to see the facts, then you have a, a foundation from which you can make your decision whether you want to trust him or not. But I can certainly understand why it's so difficult. Well, let's think a minute to remember that acrostic that we had. It said, what is trust not? Sometimes we said we looked at the opposite. One of the things we said is... Trust is not Pollyanna thinking like, well, I'm just sure everything will turn out okay. 
That's not trust. What were some of the other examples we gave of what trust was not? Mm-hmm. I'm a little bit confused because um, how can you trust him when he's done all sorts of when he lets all this stuff happen and stuff? What a big question! You know what she's saying is, well, and I assume from just a little bit I know about your life that things happened, and you may have even asked God stop this from happening. I mean, it's this huge question mark. That's a really valid question, you know. There's, For me, what I found was the Lord gave me something really important when I was about seven years old. He gave it to me in my head. He gave me an unexplained box. And when something would happen, like my Sunday school teacher said, pray and God will keep bad things from happening. So every Tuesday, Rudy would come, and I'd say, God, don't let Rudy come, and don't let me be afraid. And he came anyway. And so the Lord taught me, okay, I can either have that and allow it to be like a barrier so that I don't even look at God. Or if I'm willing to just sort of peek at him a little bit and say, there's this thing I don't understand. I'm going to keep asking you about it. Where were you? But I'm going to put that in an unexplained box for now. Joanne, she gave us an unexplained box. Weren't you here that week? (laughs) It was a big box, and it had unexplained written on it. Yeah. And we could put our questions yeah, on it. Yeah, Don. Yeah, Don. I appreciate. Yeah, I appreciate your reminder. I think maybe we can uh, we can make sure that Joanne's aware after class about that. But thanks for trying to step in. That's helpful. Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, she. It really helped me because then I keep writing questions and I That's keep putting good. it in the box. And it, I think you would like one. Yeah, she might like one. Good. How about some of the rest of you? Let's not have Don do all the work here. Any other things that it's not? Bob, let us know when we need to switch. We'll go. I'm sorry, I didn't hear you. Bargaining. Bargaining. It's not bargaining. Okay, God, if you do this, then I'm going to do that. Okay, it's 50-50. we got a deal here. It's not a bargaining. Also, remember, we talked about it's not pretending to believe. Or it's not believing that God's going to erase everything negative. Like he's this big eraser in the sky. Anything negative, he's supposed to erase it. My brother says that God's an imaginary friend for grown-ups. And, you know, I'm um, starting to think that because, you know, like she, like, you know, she said, if, I mean, why does he let killing go on? And why yeah. is he, you know, and why does he let all this bad stuff go on in my life? Mm-hmm. Makes me feel dirty and embarrassed, and and uh, you know, I'm I'm starting to believe him. Yeah. Yeah. Boy, it sounds like you're. Yeah. It sounds like that's been real effective for you, hasn't it? To kind of, up to this point anyway, right? It sounds like the, the relying on yourself has been pretty effective, hasn't it? Yeah, no choice. Yeah. No nobody, choice. there's nobody for me to trust, so why should I trust anybody yeah, else? Yeah. That's why it's such a huge issue, and that's why we're starting out the whole class with learning how to trust the one important person 
in terms of trust. You mentioned a word, pretend. You know, an imaginary friend. Um, if they'd had webcams back then or video cameras, there were at least four guys that followed Jesus around, and if they'd had a webcam, we could have just watched and when they run around how he interacted with people. And I think the more you get to consider what he's like, you see, okay, there's pretend and imaginary, but over here there's real people that lived with him and had supper with him and saw him. And I think that's why scripture is, the Bible is really so important. So that like next week's, next week's assignment where you are looking up verses, I encourage you to do that. Even if you can't remember them as you read them, at least go through them once because watching the people that were around him well, I think help you to see, okay, is he a pretend or is this a real guy that was born back then? Well, let's take a look here. Going on, um, I'd like to skip some of this and go on to the new lesson, which is after this. Um, what is faith? We mentioned uh, last time that in that Hebrews verse that faith is kind of the opposite of sight. And remember, we said we have three enemies, the world, and the world says, don't trust, just go by what you can see. And the flesh says, I'm the center of my universe, so if it doesn't, if, if it doesn't match me being in charge, I'm not so sure I want to go there. And Satan kind of uses the other two. But his big deal is to keep us separated from God. That's like what you said, Joanne, where, you know, that that question about God, Satan wanted to use that and just put that there as a barrier instead of you being able to say, okay, I'm going to keep asking him why he didn't stop it, but I'm going to put it in that unexplained box. Because if I don't, what happens is it gets, Satan uses it to keep me from getting to know him. So that makes, I'm glad you brought up that point. Um, this is a really important sentence, and I know it's there in your book. Faith results in trust. Kind of the second sentence clarifies it. Trust is the fruit of faith. But how do we get faith? Where do you, you know, some of you I know have been in churches or you grew up as kids in Sunday school. How do you get faith? Peggy, how do you get faith? What, what is a, a good way to, to get faith? I mean, where does it grow? Well, it's like a banana. That's why I use that word. Because if you see a plant, like you got a, I was visiting this faraway place, Papua New Guinea, and it had this tree in the backyard. And it had mandarin oranges growing right on the tree. That was a fruit of that tree. And what I'm saying here is that faith is the tree, and then the oranges, the fruit, is trust. That's why we're taking a look at faith, if we want to figure out trust. Otherwise, it's not going to work. So you're saying I should have faith before trust. Right. You should consider faith. But like I said before, you don't have to throw your brain away to have faith. That's why investigating is the word. 
as we go into the scriptures and we see what God is like, as you investigate that, then you're going back and thinking, hmm, let me think about that. Should I put my faith in that or not? And that's where choice comes in. For the sake that's that thing you were talking about, the teacup, you know, where you you use the word steep. Mm -hmm. You know, not just not just memorize the words, but right. to steep, steep to yeah. think to Yeah. You know, you showed us that teacup with the tea bag in it. Mm -hmm. Right, oh. that's a good reminder. Dawn's good at reminding of us us of stuff, isn't she? All right, let's give our class an applause there. Thank you. All right, what did you observe? What comments about anything? Which, by the way, can you see why in a normal Bible study um, where there's a video going up there on, and people have questions and, and different things, it just isn't as appropriate as a specific class that would deal with this? Some questions or comments? Okay. Right. Right. He's mentioning, for the sake of the tape, he's mentioning not only using affirmations, but using a lot of pictures and relating things to fruit and that and being very black and white. I had a really neat teaching experience when I lived in Ohio. You know the book J.I. Packard wrote, Knowing God? It's sort of a treaty on knowing him. I taught it to preschoolers. It was wonderful. You could hear a pin drop in there. Why? I, I'm not even sure why, because I'm not that good at teaching preschoolers. That's not my, I'm junior high, I'm not teaching preschoolers. But each week we took a character of God from that book, you could hear a pin drop because they were in awe at hearing what he's like. Because they usually hear, share what you have with others, you know, those kind of application verses, which are good. But what about God delights in you? You know, what about those kind of verses? Anyway, that brings out the point that when you're dealing with people, whether they have a lot of mind noise or confusion, or you know they have barriers to the to the knowing the Lord, being black and white, being very basic and very cut and dried, like trust is the fruit of faith, something like that, can be very helpful. Thank you. You can go back here. Any other comments? Uh-huh. The question is, how do you get a class like this going in a church so that only people who are wounded in an area, this level of woundedness would come? What we found in our church, it works really well because it, it isn't that you send out a big brochure to the whole church, but our community care department sends people that they're counseling with or meeting with to our class. And also the women's ministry, I've had the head of that come to me and say, you know, one of my facilitators is having real trouble in her class with this one particular lady. And she described the situation. And so what I, my remedy for her was tell her to keep going to that class, but also to come to this class. And she went to her and said, you know, there's, a, there's an additional class that I think would really help. And like you said, they've read everything. They want 
to come to find help. We have trouble during the holidays, don't we, Dawn, getting the thing to cancel for one week. They want to come between Christmas and New Year's and because it's such a place of community. So what she did then, she she went to her study on Tuesday. She came to ours the following Monday. She realized, you know, this would be better for me to be in. So it solved two problems. It got her into appropriate discipleship, but it also made it so that that class could, that there wouldn't be the intrusion. It was at such a level that it was derailing that class. Mm-hmm. Uh, Joanne brought up the point, you just don't want wounded in your class. That's true. That, that brings up a little infomercial for one of Jim's Wilder's Munchies. It's called The Weak and the Strong Together. And it's really the good idea of in community, you don't isolate and segregate, okay, all the lepers go over here, you know, or whatever. Um, it's not, a, it's not. I think the best discipleship class for, for people who are rebuilding their life is not a support group. A support group is different to me. You have support group for people who've come through drug addictions. You have support group for people who've come through sexual abuse. Those are good. But what I'm talking about in terms of appropriate discipleship, it's not commonality of backgrounds. It's it's variety of backgrounds that have produced a commonality of spiritual issues. Let me say that again. It's not commonality of background. It's commonality of a, or it's a variety of backgrounds that have caused a common sort of laundry list of difficulties in the Christian life. Inability to trust God the Father, um, feeling like you're never good enough, feeling like you have to measure up, you know, all these different things, or feeling dirty like this person spoke. So when we have classes, it isn't just that you have everybody that is shattered by DID or everybody who's been sexually abused. We have people that just have always not been able to connect with God, for example. I mean, they've tried everything. Or people that have been grieving the loss of a child, or people that have gone through a divorce and that kind of betrayal that has just left them wounded. So there's a variety of levels of maturity, a variety of levels of woundedness. But you know the one factor that we found? It's full of grace. It's just amazing. You know, I was teaching in a class and we had a lady who was mentally ill, had come to the class, and she was conducting while I was teaching. And her other hand was trying to keep this hand from conducting, so this was going on. And next to her came a new lady, and she said, when I met her at the door, I said, are you married? And she said, well, I don't know. There's a guy there during the day, but somebody seems to be different at night. So I said, well, do you have children? She said, well, I think I have six, but I'm not sure. So I wasn't sure what was going on there. She's sitting right next to this lady. Well, if that were a normal situation class, the other students would feel so awkward and so like, away, you know, twilight zone or something, and have all kinds of negative attitudes to further isolate those folks. Nobody bothered. Jane came and conducted. She conducted every week, and that's no big deal. You know, somebody went running out and with a demonic eruption. We had the staff trained to know what to do. The students, and it wasn't like this, oh, what are we going to do? You know? But anyway, this lady who was sitting next to Jane in the middle of the class, she said, wait a minute. God just talked to me. I thought, oh, gee, you know. <laughs> okay, so I said to the Lord, you know, classes for me are, are really uh, prayer meetings with an occasional class breaking out, you know, because I'm going, what should I say, Lord? You know? And so I said, Lord, what should I say? And I really felt like he said to me, why don't you ask her what I said? 
so I said, well, what did God tell you? And she said, well, God told me that there's parts of my brain that I can't control, but there's other parts that I can control. I can control my thoughts, and that's why he sent me to this class so I can learn to control my thoughts. Now, she, or, she had no concept of scripture about taking every thought captive. And so I said, in my wisdom, I said, that was the Lord. <laughs> but even in those extreme cases, um, that's why I said, remember, when I started out, ministry to the marginalized, when I did the soundbite, to me is the easiest ministry because you have nothing within yourself apart from him to give them. And in some other venues, you sort of feel, well, I've been to Bible school, I know Greek, and I know Hebrew, and I can carry on. The amount of chaos that is often present in one person's life, you just listen and you think, where would you start? Somebody mentioned that. It makes you start on your knees right away, which is perfect. Because you have nothing to give these people. You have Actually, you have nothing to give the sort of the dressed up the rest of us that are doing pretty good. Um, you don't have anything to give us either, but it's it's harder to see that. It's harder to see the dependency on him that's needed there because you've got your manual and you're supposed to get through the manual. If you get through the manual, you're successful as a Bible teacher. So you don't need the Holy Spirit because you got your manual, you know. So I'm sorry. Any soapbox. Okay, could we run? I would like to talk more, but I want to run a video clip. Um, if you can show me how to do that. Um, this was an uh, interview between a, a pastor of our church and Don Remtema, who was one of the ladies. She was the answer lady, the one who knew and was trying to straighten out Joanne, remember her? Um, and she um, she is the head of the R&R program at a church. One of the things I really appreciate, Don, is she knows how to build a team. If you want to know how to build a team, sorry, Don, but go talk to Don. I mean, she's expert at doing that. And ministry to the marginalized needs a team. Okay, why don't you go ahead and play that. Can you see it with these lights, or do we need them shut off? I have two really special people with me today. Pastor Brent Williams is head of the pastoral care department here at Woodman Valley Chapel in Colorado Springs. And Don Remtema is the director of the R&R Discipleship Program. So I've asked them to come, and maybe we can just direct them, direct some questions to them to give us sort of a feel of what is the, the cooperation or the benefit between a church and a discipleship program that's designed specifically for wounded people. So maybe, Brent, I'll start with you. If you can just kind of introduce yourself a bit and tell us a bit about where pastoral care fits into the church. Could you do that for us? Be glad to, and uh, greetings to everyone in Indianapolis. We would love to have been there this year, but it just didn't work out for us. So um, we're there in spirit and in prayer support of you all. Um, this is um, a unique history here that we have with this relation, with this um, this unique ministry that Elaine is a part of and Don Remptum as well. And I think it the fit starts with our, our church's vision statement is about real people in different shapes and sizes and groups and opportunities being involved in in the culture that we are that we are all part of today. And it's a turbulent culture, but we want to be um, hands and feet 
if you will, of the grace and person of Jesus Christ in those many different places in our culture. So that's a starting point for our church to be a place of grace that's really actually lived out and not just on a piece of paper called our Mm -hmm. bulletin, weekly bulletin. And then secondarily, the pastoral care department literally exists to reach out to, hands-on, and minister to very broken people who are very, very stuck in life severely broken that we will be the safe place that may be a first step a starting point for people with any kind of brokenness there's no conditions on that we may not be the end point we hope but we're going to be the starting point and that's i think how our church in this particular department fits with what the r&r ministry is really all about and of course i'll let i would invite dawn to explain more about r&r even stands for that would be good Don, what can you give us a thumbnail of what the R&R program is? Well, R&R stands for Rebuilding and Renewing. And um, most of the people that come into our program have had pretty traumatic, shattered lives. And so um, we're helping them um, remove the rubble uh, and also start to renew their mind. Um, the scriptures tell us that Uh, we are transformed by the renewing of our mind. And so that's part of the discipleship process that we are providing for them. How long a program is it? Well, we start out with a year's program. And um, actually, it's 11 months, but we start in the fall. And we try to provide something into the summer so that they really feel connected to the church. Mm, Very good. Well, maybe I can ask both of you, Brent, first. How do you feel that the interface between the church and the discipleship program, whether it's R&R or a specific other program that really meets the needs of the deeply wounded, what is the benefit from the church's side? There's probably uh, several key benefits, but one is our department in this particular fellowship serves thousands of people, literally. Uh, who attend here, but then in our community who our attenders reach out to. So there's limitations on what a person can do hands-on, which I guess is God's idea of the body and community and teamwork kind of a thing. And we know that it requires multiple resources to effectively minister to anybody. But in the case of uh, those deeply shattered We know that there's one critical issue at stake here that makes things break or really happen, and that's the issue of trust. And we believe that that trust muscle needs to be restored in people's lives through more than one kind of contact, more than one resource. So there's not a a dependency on, say, one person. They're going to put all the marbles in one basket of that emotional trust. and They're going to have multiple resources that they realize are safe and are on the same page with their lives and understand, and they can be a part of their journey of healing and freedom. So that's why, no matter if it's a tiny church, but maybe one pastor and associate doing it all, or a large church serving a large body, the same concept really applies as identifying and uh, different resources can serve together to help that person learn to trust again. And of course, we're the hands and feet of Jesus, quite literally, in that person's life. How will they trust an invisible God 
when there's somebody here that's either trustworthy or isn't trustworthy. Mm-hmm. So we've got to, there's got to be multiple opportunities to exercise trust for that person slowly over time. 11 months, not 11 weeks. Mm, that's a great a good example point. of that. And trusting different people and different experiences of community, whether it's literally saying hi to this, this lady or that lady out at the coffee bar or after the service or or at some other event in town you see them in town or meeting with them in a small group or meeting with them one-on-one every of those one of those situations is pretty critical um, for that person to experience a healing community and a safe community so a long answer to a short question. Well, it sounds like that the church has really benefited from having a specific discipleship program that dovetails with what you're doing in pastoral care. Yes, because the walking wounded are the more common, but those severely wounded don't come out of the shadows very often. Mm-hmm. And we see God bringing somebody, giving them the courage to step out and reach out for help. We really have to be ready to meet them right then and there at that spot and and lead them into those resources slowly and patiently. We've got to be ready for those or, or we're, I think we're failing mm. as the church if we aren't able to be ready to meet people right where they're at in that severe woundedness. That's a good point. Don, from your perspective as the leader of the discipleship program, how do you see a benefit interfacing with the church? Say, for example, rather than having a, just a separate, uh, more isolated class in your home, for example. Well, um, I have done both, and I've seen the value of being under pastoral leadership, whether it's a senior pastor. Uh, for one thing, it's a, it's a big step for uh, a shattered person to come to a discipleship class. Uh, It's a new context of community, and so I'm often asked, is this really a safe place? So there's a high level of confidentiality, um, and I think they get to see the opportunity of people that care, not just the pastors, but also lay people that really care. And um, we aren't comparing notes. We're just there to care for them. Uh, I think also it takes that much encouragement from several people for them to come into the discipleship class, to know that there are people in on pastoral staff that are praying for them, that there's a prayer team praying for them, and then there are also our leadership each week that are praying for them and following up with them, encouraging them to come and check up when they aren't there as to what's going on in their lives. Sounds like the prayer support is a real key component part in the program. Yes, I think we we see the value of pre-prayer. Prayer. All right, this is actually like a 20-minute interview. If you'd like a free copy of this, just uh, maybe give Dawn your name and we can get that to you. But I, what I'm hoping to show you through this is the interface between the church leadership and the discipleship class. Um, there's benefits on both sides. and But you might be thinking, well, you know, I don't have like a whole team or anything. 
what I'd like to do, and this is another good reason why I gave you all your notes, you can read them later as we buzz through them quickly now, but besides getting specific training um, in appropriate discipleship, I think that the place to begin is with a prayer team. And that's good. It should work. Okay. You want to fix it here? And that? Okay. Uh, I'm glad somebody knows about this stuff. Okay. All right. Um, building a prayer team. Find one person who knows how to pray. That's where to start. And join with them. And in that, um, you will begin to see the Lord's direction for your specific situation. But prepare yourself for the work of prayer. There's some pages in your book. We won't look at them now. But it has to do with some ideas of how to pray for yourself and then how to also pray for those you minister to. Train the team. Well, you think, well, what do they need training for? They just come and pray. Well, I'd suggest when you're working with any group, but especially this group, train them how to do spiritual warfare in prayer. This is in your notes there. Um, there's a definition of spiritual warfare, a verse there, but I like to define it kind of in a new way, aligning ourselves with the victory at the cross of Christ. That is the understanding that our focus is not the battle before us, but the confidence and strength that comes from knowing that he has already won the battle. So that you need to have your prayer team know how to do spiritual warfare and prayer. We have a bunch of little cards out there called Fight. Those are excellent ones. When I was going through finding freedom from the demonic that came as a, as a result of, of living in a home, an occultic home where Satan was worshipped, the demonic things in my life that were so strong, I went to scriptures and the Lord gave me verses to zero in on in the middle of the night or when the demonic got strong. And so I put those verses on little cards. And that's what that fight section is, fight meditation cards, because um, they can be really used. Bring them along. Tell your prayer team to bring them along when you're having class so that they can be praying those. Um, well, aligning ourselves, what does that look like? How can we prepare ourselves for spiritual warfare? Study the centrality of the cross. Do a Bible study just on the cross. Um, or go through one of the Gospels and build a Theology 101 about spiritual warfare based on what the Lord taught the disciples about spiritual warfare. Get your webcam out, video cam, watch how he trains his team to do spiritual battle. Or go to the book of Ephesians, which was written to a church filled with people who had come out of the occult. Remember, they burned their books? And you can see what important truths did Paul focus on? What did he have to make sure they knew? Isn't that a powerful book just, just in the exaltation of Christ and a clear picture of who Christ is? So train them how to do spiritual warfare in prayer and then train them to pray through scriptures. Um, maybe we can end with this. Um, I think three people have your scriptures. Um, if you could um, read whoever has number one, and let's just say out some phrases of how we could turn this scripture into prayer or into affirmations of truth in prayer. Why don't you read the verse?
dominion, O Lord, and you exalt yourself as head over all. All right. What a bunch of good stuff in there. Can somebody just give us one phrase where we could take that and turn it into prayer? Thank you, Lord, that you have dominion over the darkness. Who has number two? Raise your hand so we can get, there we go, right in front here. All right, your verse. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his sovereignty rules over all. Bless the Lord, you his angels, mighty in strength, who perform his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all you his hosts, you who serve him, doing his will. Bless the Lord, all you works of his, in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Let's have somebody give us a phrase that we could pray based on that verse. Amen. Amen. Doesn't it just make your spirit jump up? I mean, it feeds your spirit. Who's number three? We had three verses right behind you. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Amen. Somebody want to give us a phrase from that? Lord, we thank you that you have eternal dominion. You don't just have dominion. You have eternal dominion. We worship and honor you. See, something like that, you could train your prayer team in so that there's a specific concept of what to do. Another point is teach them to pray proactive, not reactive, crisis-based prayers. Not the nine one, not just the 9 one Lord, help, they're going to commit suicide, which are effective prayers. But you'll see in your notes, I took the prayers of Paul, and about five of them, and I just made a little summary sentence. May they, they, be, may they walk in their calling. You know, may they be confirmed in your will. May they follow you completely. So that, like what we're praying for each other anyway, right? Well, let's not go there. But, um, like, we should be praying so that it's not all get them out of this. Just like we don't spend all our time praying, get me out of this. So teach them how to do spiritual warfare. Teach them how to pray through scripture. Teach them to pray proactively. And teach them to use the weapon of praise. Uh, there's a little set of cards out there called King of Kings. And again, that was this a compilation of verses that the Lord gave me 40 years, 35 years ago, um, as I was finding freedom um, to learn how to memorize those things. You know, we usually learn application verses, you know, like the Navigators has a really good, initially had a, has a really, had a really good set. They still do. I think they've added some praise things to their stuff. Really good stuff. But... If you can teach your praise team how to use a weapon of praise, that's a real weapon, you know. So, um, since our time is gone and our Q and A, there's our contact information. It's in your book as well. Um, since our time is gone, if people have specific questions, maybe the best thing to do is to come up individually, and then we can kind of answer those. Because I want to try to stay on schedule for the next people. So until they kick us out of the room. We can shut the camera down and just uh, people, if they have to leave, we understand. If not, people can just stay and ask a few questions. So thanks for paying attention. I didn't notice anybody. Fall. Well, there was that one guy back there. Yeah. <laughs>